Hello and welcome back to JLXP, JDG versus Rogue Breakdown. I'm I'm a little surprised by how early it is. It's 5.09 Pacific time. The series started at 2 p.m. Pacific time, so it was it was a quick one. And it's not incredibly surprising. I think Rogue did have some upset potential in this series based on the way that they play. But overall, I think JDG played to their style, which based on player skill and the way that Rogue wins games, I think if it's going to break JDG's way, this is fairly like fairly common for the way the series should go. But I wanted to try something a little different with this episode. I'm going to break down each game and draft individually. I have a ton of notes and timestamps from each game about what the big beats were. And I was hoping while watching the series that doing this process was going to give me a clearer understanding of who really performed above expectations, how close the games actually were. And then I wanted to be able to share that with all of the viewers in, in this podcast. So first time trying to do this kind of in-depth point-by-point breakdown. Hopefully it is not too difficult to follow along in podcast form. There will be a slight visual aid with the scoreboards that I have up on the you know left side of the screen, which just lets everyone know kind of what the CS, KDA, and champions were each game. Um, so you can see in game one, JDG wins in 29 minutes and the draft is there. But but before we get into the games individually, I want to talk about what each team needed to do to win the series, in my opinion, and what the team styles were overall. So when I look at Rogue and the champions they played the majority of summer split, they generally have a lot of utility in the top side of the map. So Oduwamne plays either bruisers or tanks. He plays them quite well. And Malrang, everyone knows he loves Jarvan, but he plays these really gank-heavy junglers that he'll end up getting enough tank items on them that he's really just trying to be a playmaker the entire game. He's a playmaker for the laning phase, and then he's trying to be a teamfight initiator for them later. So the top side of the map never necessarily carries unless Odo has this ridiculous, ridiculous game, which is fairly rare. And then that also puts a lot of pressure on the mid and bot side of the map to do the majority of the damage. So Larson, his most played is Azir. That makes a lot of sense. But then he also plays, like in Summer Split, uh, 14 Azir games, 7 Ari games, 5 Tali games, 4 Silas, 4 Victor, 4 Orianna. So generally control mage focused, he needs to do a lot of heavy lifting in teamfights. And bot lane, actually, their two most played in Summer Plus playoffs were Callista and Lucian which is very, very lane dominant, and you pair that frequently with Trimby on range supports. So the general way they play, if you think of it almost like a seesaw, is they're absorbing a ton of pressure in top lane and hoping that those can provide teamfight structure later in the game, but they're really playing the majority of their games through bot and mid, and it does give them a clear way to play the game, which is honestly very effective in most cases, and that's also the style that they're pretty much going to have to play all of Worlds with, with this lineup. So that's what, well, that's what I kind of expected them. They really, really need to win bot lane and start stacking dragons to have a chance in this series. Going over to the way that JDG wanted to play and looking at their champions throughout all of Summer Split playoffs and a little bit of Worlds, they have Kanavi, who is a carry jungler. He takes a huge amount of farm and wants to be a large contributor in teamfights. They also have 369. Many people consider him to be the best top laner in the world who basically plays everything, but that also allows him to play tanks 
when they really have the carry jungler and they need some way to have team fight structure, or if the matchup calls for it, he'll play a carry like Gangplank, which was his most played in summer split. He had nine Gangplank games, eight and one overall record. But Gangplank can also provide a lot of team fight structure because he can zone with his barrels and his ultimate. Yagao in mid lane. While he does have 10 Azir games, has 18 Ari games, 13 Talia games, also Silas, Lissandra, Rise. So he's definitely a push and move mid laner, which works extremely well with carry junglers. That's where they get a lot of their playmaking around the map. And then 80 carry wise, Hope, 17 Aphelios games, 10 Ezreal, 10 Lucian, 10 Callista. So a mix of hyper carries and lane dominant champions. And also Missing has like 16 unique supports in all of Summer Split. So he's a very versatile support player overall. So generally the way this team plays isn't necessarily through a specific lane. It, If you're going to pick a specific lane, it would actually be jungle, jungle mid, moving around and making plays happen. But they excel in teamfights. So when they're at their best, they're not necessarily blowing people out in the early games, but they are a very strong team fighting team that relies on their mechanics. So with that context, going into game one, the drafts end up making a lot of sense. So JDG banned away a lot of the structure that Rogue would try and accomplish in game one by getting rid of Orn, Maokai, and Kate right away. Two strong picks for Odawamne, and also one of the lane dominant champions that Comp could play. And then Rogue just banned Aatrox, Yumi, and Silas. Silas specifically is going to be at Yagao. Aatrox and Yumi are just kind of OP. And the way this game started was fairly heavily in JDG's favor because they did a brute force three-man invade into Rogue's red buff and allowed Graves to basically split the map but make it very prescriptive where Malrong would be able to go, which makes it very difficult for him to affect the lanes early. And this is the other thing that I wanted to do in this podcast. With the draft that you see on your screen, there's this really cool feature on Games of Legends when you subscribe to the like Patreon analyst tier that has all of his entire database of games for 2022. So that's all major regions that he has, all academy regions that he has, all play-in regions that he has. But basically, it's just a very large pool of games where you can actually see as close to objectively as possible how a matchup should go based on the champions that play each other. So I have that here. So in this game, the top lane matchup of Gragas versus Renekton It has been played 84 times across all of those games that I've just mentioned. It is a 55% win rate for Gragas, but specifically the CS at 15 is what I'm going to be using as a benchmark. This matchup averages a 21 CS advantage for Renekton, therefore a 21 CS disadvantage for Gragas. Jungle, Graves, Vi. Really hard to get data on this because Vi is such a niche pick and only really came to prominence at the end. This matchup only happened five times in 2022 from the sample set that I was pulling from. And Graves is up an average of 14.6 CS. Makes a lot of sense because Graves is more of a power farmer. Talia Azir, 99 games to pull from. Talia averages being down 10 CS. The win rate's at 52%. Talia favored, so very, very even. Where this one gets really interesting is the Aphelios Lulu and the Lucian Nami. This was seen in game one and in game two. And in both games, the Aphelios Lulu had heavy prio in the bottom lane. 
However, looking at the 119 games that Lucian has played against Ophelios or the 153 games that Lulu has played against Nami, it is favored to Lucian Nami. Lucian had a 62% win rate in the AD carry matchup, and Nami had a 59% win rate in the support matchup. Also, it has gone the Lucian Nami way very substantially. There is a player diff here when you look at the Gen G versus 100 Thieves game, where Ruler literally ended the game in three minutes against FBI. So we know that Lucian Nami can dominate this lane, but it's definitely not what happened in this series. So I'll get into the kind of point by point of what happened in the game, but because I have the, the sheet open right now, uh, what I did is I took all of those. CS differences and kind of summed them up. So if you took all four of the farming roles there and added up, you would expect at 15 minutes there to be a total CS difference amongst the four farming roles of 22. JDG would actually be down 22 CS based off the matchup, which in your head says, okay, Rogue has picked early game, generally strong matchups, and you would expect them to be up. After 15 minutes, JDG was up 30 CS, so they were 52 CS over expectation in this game. And that's a trend that happens throughout the series. So JDG uh, was 42 CS up in the jungle. The majority of this difference actually happened from the Graves just absolutely power farming for the majority of the game. The Renekton matchup was only plus 8 for Odawamne. And the AD carry matchup was plus 12 for Aphelios Lucian with Talia Azir being plus 16 for Larson, which also need to note in this game, Yagao was not on stage. He tested positive for COVID, so that might have impacted his performance somewhat. But getting into the game a little bit more, it was heavily dominated by the Graves' tempo. He stole, I believe, every single red buff of the game. So he was able to cycle that over and over again. And also the lane that Rogue generally wants to play through, the Lucianami, was never visited because the game ended up being played around the Renekton Gragas matchup, which unless you absolutely blow that lane open, is always going to neutralize later and become Gragas favored. So the very first play of the game where Odo does get first blood top lane and also gets assist gold over to Malrong doesn't end up impacting that much because Graves can continue to get CS, he can cycle through the jungle, he can accelerate, and he can just kind of keep that up for, for the rest of the game. Uh, also, because he was invading red buff so much, and he got a very early um, Umbral Glaive, the ward clearing item, the river was JDG's the entire time. Like, the one lane that was favored for Rogue was the Azir versus Talia matchup in the mid lane. He kept decent push on that lane, but could never push up too far because they never had river control. Kanavi had river control pretty much the entire game. They also put even more gold onto Kanavi because he took Rift Herald at 9 minutes and 20 seconds, giving Rogue over Cloud Drake for free. But again, that just accelerates the Graves and makes it more important for him to get more and more farm. Overall pressure, even though Larson was able to get a little bit of prio, he could never hit the turret. By 14 minutes, it was five turret plates to zero and just accelerating JDG. It was actually a little bit of a hero play by Malrong that kept him in this game at all because, and you can leave it in the comments if this is too hard to follow, but this is going to be the general trend of the podcast. Uh, Malrong does these like hero ganks bottom lane 
where he's able to kill Aphelios twice and then also later kill Yagao. There's actually this whole sequence of about like four minutes where Rogue gets all four of their kills in like the same spot of the bot lane right as they're getting pushed into their turret. They kept that like triangle bush above their turret on the red side with a good control ward and just killed them over and over again. Um, but while that is happening, they're still not controlling the top side of the map. They're never controlling Rift Heralds. And we know based on the team comps that the team fighting from JDG is going to outscale unless Rogue can somehow blow this game open through bottom lane, which they never do. Like comp is getting a few kills and the gold is actually very well in the side of Rogue because they get the four kills bottom lane as well as getting a couple minutes later around 20 uh 1930 actually they get some picks like as their red buff is getting stolen so like they're, they're barely keeping competitive in this game they have some gold on azir lucian they have two dragons and they really need to snowball but like as soon as the third dragon fight happens you just see how godlike the overall jdg team comp is uh they get the first setup on the drake they just re-engage so well the overall mobility of 369's Gragas and Yagao's Talia just lets them continue to chase down on Rogue after they get the kills they Kanavi is just cycling the jungle through this entire sequence by 2130 he's 209 CS to 111 CS on Malrung by 23 minutes he has Umbral Glaive Gore Drinker and Black Cleaver Whereas the Vi is sitting on Divine Sunderer, a Longsword, and a Health Crystal. Like, it is not even close. As the game continues towards the 26-minute mark, JDG uses good front-to-back team fighting. They easily take mid lane and river. They just completely push Rogue out of the space. Like, there's no good way for Rogue to get first setup on the Drake at this point in the game because they don't outrange with the Lucian versus the Ophelios. They don't have better front-to-back with the Gragas versus the Renekton, and they don't have the ability to push sideways because Odo never gets far enough ahead of Gragas and also doesn't go the Blade of the Ruin King build. So there's just no way for them to set up. Maron gets like this Miracle Steal on third Drake, but because they're fighting, they just lose it, and then JDG gets Baron, and like literally the game ends two minutes later. You can see by the end of it just how superior... JDG was front to back. They're only up like 5,000 gold. They're actually down two drakes, but they just walk through the front door. There's no flanks for Rogue. There's no outrange for Rogue and game's over, right? So basically the TLDR of this is I don't hate Rogue's draft because it did play to their style. Comp and Trimby were just never able to get anything done. Like if they could have rulered that lane and gone 50 CS up on Hope and Missing then yeah, they can win the game. But without that happening, JDG is just so solid with their team fighting. So for that game, I gave away grades. I awarded Kanavi the S+, which is like the MVP of the game. I don't think he really could have done much better with the way he was cycling camps. I gave 369 an A on Gragas. I gave Yagao a B. I gave Hope a B+, missing a B+. I gave Odo a C for Renekton uh, because he was... Not able to get the average CS advantage despite getting large amounts of jungle attention and first blood and was unable to provide any side lane pressure. I gave Malrong a B actually, even though he did get out CS'd by 100. Part of that is the matchup and he also pulled off some ridiculously good ganks. 
Uh, two best grades on Rogue I gave were Larson a B plus and Comp an A because I thought Comp actually played a lot of the team fights really well considering the circumstances in order to get Gold on to himself. And I thought Larson was up in CS pretty much the entire matchup and doing pretty well in team fights. It's just once you got to late game team fights, he didn't have tools to actually be able to do damage. So I can't really hold him against that too much. And then supports are tricky. Uh, it's really hard to judge the Nami versus Lulu. I did give Trimby a lower grade of B- because there were a few moments where he flashed over walls and then kind of paid the price for it. So so that's game one. Give me one second to, uh, to scroll to game two here. Make sure that it shows up properly. There we go. And let's get into game two. So game two, as you can see, sides have switched. Rogue has blue side. Uh, Kadro mentioned that Rogue was a better blue side team which was really interesting to me. He said like 80% win rate on blue, like 50 on red. It's not quite that pronounced. Um, Summer split plus playoffs. It is actually uh, 12 and 10 on blue, 12 and 9 on red. But if I go to just LEC Summer 2022, uh, it's also somewhat similar. So I think it must have been spring split that Rogue was better. Here, there's not really a huge advantage. However, when I do look at the way the meta is trending, it does make me think that blue side is a lot more powerful uh basically because if red side is just kind of feeling locked into banning yumi and aatrox it's going to make blue just massively more flexible and it doesn't seem like there's massive counter picks that are going on right now so going over the team comps in this one you can see uh same bot lane matchup so rogue is just hoping to run this one back the bans on 4-5 have been pretty consistent from JDG, making sure that Malrong doesn't get Jarvan. It's a first pick Maokai for Odawamne, and they hold the flex as long as possible, but that's also why in the draft JDG waits until the fifth pick to get the Gwen, because that's when the jungle is locked in and they know where Maokai is going. And we're actually in a very similar situation to where we were last game, um, except this draft would be... I, I think a little bit better for Rogue than the last one. Uh, pretty much the same mid bot lane in the fact that they want to play with a lot of prio and push through, but then also they just have better teamfight structure, assuming Odawamne doesn't fall too far behind. But the difference here uh, compared to, say, like the Gragas Renekton matchup versus the Maokai Gwen matchup is the non tank side is more likely to be able to outscale. So the Renekton doesn't outscale, it has to snowball. The Gwen doesn't have to snowball could possibly even lose lane to the Maokai and still be fine. It's a little trickier to break this one down statistically because there was actually only one recorded Gwen versus Maokai game. Not many people have played Maokai top lane until Worlds. So definitely unexplored territory, and I think Odo is hoping to abuse his knowledge of matchup to be able to win this one. For what it's worth, in that one game, Gwen was up 11 CS at 15. The Viego Lee Sin matchup was actually played 438 times to a 50 50 win rate. So that is literally just a handshake of 80 junglers. Keep in mind, the patches do change. These are imperfect stats, but I think they're kind of the best we have to work for. Viego's up for CS at 15 on average. Silas Azir is 54% favored for Silas. It's happened 112 times, and Silas is on average down 12 CS. And the Aphelios-Lucian matchup that we talked about last time, still 119 games. 
Obviously, it would be like 120 now, and what happened last game would impact it, but that's not updated for this. Uh, Aphelios expected to be down about 4 CS by 15. But what happened? Well, JDG was up 18 CS top, up 28 CS in jungle, up 8 CS in mid, and up 36 CS in bot. So they were 91 over expectation. The expectation would be that these lanes go somewhat equal. Which, draft for draft, if these lanes go equal and you think about walking into teamfights, it's fine. It would be fine for Rogue. But the, the difference of what happened in the laning phase just put them at such a disadvantage in this game. So what actually happened? Bot lane frickin' exploded. The 340 turret dive where Hope and Missing get Comp and Trimby fairly low. Kanavi does a quick path towards bottom lane. Malrang is shadowing. Like, he is going to be there for the dive. But it's like a snap of the finger, and both Lucian and Nami die. Like, it was, it was the cleanest dive I have probably seen since the durability update. No one really stacks waves and dives because it almost always results in a trade kill or even two deaths. But it's literally a clean two for zero dive, and Lee was there. So Marong can't even make a cross map. He's there like two seconds late and is unable to do anything. So like from there, uh, 369 is really just playing like a little over aggressive. Uh, Marang gets a good gank timing on him at 440. He kills him a couple times this game where Marang like 369 is just pushing up without really having any jungle intervention because Kanavi is just making sure that hope and missing stay ahead. Cause honestly, if that happens, they just win the game. So he like trolled a tiny bit in this game, I'd say 369, but overall, like this game was just so heavily about the Aphelios moving. They get another 2v2 kill at 12 minutes. They get first turret without even having to drop Harold. They get eight plates to three overall, and they just start brute forcing their way around the map. At 16 minutes, they just brute force another Harold, And the game really is just over at 1830 since the only positive thing that Rogue has been able to do in this game is kill 369. They try and do it a third time, uh, Gwen is a little bit stronger at this point and the Lee Sin Maokai doesn't have that much damage to actually kill the Gwen as the game gets later and later the Maokai dies Malrang dies and literally like by 19 minutes I'd say because the gold lead was so big like anything that happens after this doesn't matter one thing I'll say is Yagao did a lot better this time. They clearly wanted the Silas into the Azir matchup because they didn't ban Azir in the 4-5 of this draft. And he was able to move a lot. So he didn't necessarily get a ton of plates or get a ton of kills, but he did apply a lot of pressure overall on the map. This was definitely the cleanest game by JDG of the entire series. And overall, the grades I gave was an S plus to hope and an S to missing. This was really a bot lane diff the lowest grade on JDG I gave was to 369, which was a B. He just w pushed up a little bit too much. Yes, it did apply a little bit of map pressure, but he definitely could have played a little more respectfully, which would have made the game even cleaner. Odo, I actually did give 
an A2 in this game because he was generally up in lane, generally able to kill 369. He's not expected to get prior on this matchup. He's just expected to be a front lane tank, which he would have been able to do had the map not exploded around him. Uh, I gave Cs to both Comp and Trimby because the lane shouldn't be that far against them, even though they did get ganked. It's it's not how I've seen that matchup go in the past. Um, and I'm definitely conflicted on this matchup because so much of it is player skill. I think it's like a handshake, hand stiff matchup. So uh, we'll see if we'll we'll see this matchup again later on, just because we've seen kind of two extremes of it now, where Ruler did this to FBI, but Hope did this to Comp. They flipped it on both sides. And I think it's time to go on to game three. This was definitely the closest game of the series. As you can see it on the screen right now. Um, the Orn versus Maokao is really interesting to me in this one. Because we don't have that much data on it. But in the two games <laughs> that I was able to pull, Orn was up uh, 23 CS at 15. Viego Lee Sin, same as last time, 4, four CS positive for Viego. Silas actually down about 10 CS to LeBlanc. Silas loses most lanes and hopes to outscale. And also is just better with less gold than most mid lane champions. And Lucian Callista was very interesting. It's actually up 7 CS for Lucian on average, but that's the 80 carry stats are always so difficult because the support matchups can vary so much and decide so much of the lane, and it's too difficult to pair them properly. Lucians are a little more accurate because it's almost always Lucian Nami, but then Callista has so many different pairings, it's hard to say. I do really like the Callista Soraka combo for Rogue, and it almost gave them a chance to win this game. So the summed CS differences for this game, you would expect JDG to be up 25 CS at 15, and they were down 19 CS at 15. So this is the only game of the three that Rogue overperformed their lane expectations um, by 43. And it wasn't even from top lane. So like if I threw the top lane out, they would have overperformed it by even more because top lane was terrible. They were down 34 CS in top lane, but Rogue was up 21 CS in mid and 33 CS in bottom. So uh, definitely stayed competitive for a lot more of this game. And I'd say a lot of this was just based off of Comp and Trimby having a very strong early game. They baited a 2v2 in the bottom lane, which gives them a double kill because partially a mistake from JDG and partially an outplay by Rogue where Trimby just held his heel and Hope flashed in, Soraka pressed heel and they get the double kill. I'd say the way this game broke open was very interesting because Kanavi pretty much abandoned his bottom lane after the first disaster and started playing around Orn, which you wouldn't really expect to work. But Orn was just smashing Maokai. Jungle help definitely contributed a little bit, but... It's just to carry Orn. Like, he, he gets a solo kill. They break top lane turret before anything else. They end up getting six turret plates to two still, even though their bottom lane lost heavily. And just going through some of my notes right here, like, Maokai or Nami is pretty hilarious when they actually group. And I say Maokai Orn because Silas can just steal the Maokai ultimate, one of the reasons Silas can be so good this world. And when they're throwing that many lines at Rogue, it makes it very difficult for Rogue to have the right team fighting setup. And it's also very difficult for Rogue with this, this set of champions 
to be able to DPS out a Silas and an Orn. The hope for Rogue in this game is that Larson pops off, which he did, and actually keeps them in the game here because he one-shots the Lucian before Lucian buys Hexdrinker. This happened around 24 minutes when the game was very close, since before that point, it had generally been a trade. Top lane farms up Orn and Viego versus Comp and Trimby getting really fed. And Larson Yagawa just kind of splitting CS through most of this until the LeBlanc gets a lot of one-site potential. And there's some very close fights in this game between like 24 and 30 minutes. But weirdly enough, like as soon as Hope builds Hexdrinker, like just taking him away as a viable target, you can see by the end of the game, there's a Verdant Barrier on Silas. There's Mercury Treads and a Hexdrinker on Viego. There's Orn being Orn. And there's a Null Magic on Missing and a Hexdrinker on Hope. So Larson's one-shot potential is no longer there. The front-to-back, like it had been for all three series in this game, is heavily in the favor of JDG. So yes, they are again kind of racing against a Dragon Soul from Rogue, but they are just so much stronger in the 5v5 and managed to find gold, in this case by cross-mapping. In the other games, it was just straight-up lane gaps. And, and the series is over. So I'd say overall... If we look across all three games, JDG, they pick superior team fighting comps in all three games. And with team fighting, I specifically do mean front to back, but Rogue was heavily prioritizing early laning in bottom lane, wasn't necessarily to get that many advantages. But then the, the, the other possible problem here is even if you don't have stronger like 5v5 eye contact team fighting, you need to have a champion that can create space by pushing side lanes. And it never felt like they had that, right? When they're up against Silas, their mid lane's not going to be able to do that. And when they had Renekton into Gragas, he never got strong enough to be able to create side lane space. So, so JDG could always create good fight conditions that never really gave Rogue a smart time to set up. So JDG... They overperformed laning expectations greatly in games one and two, which let their team fight comps have really smooth transitions into team fighting because they didn't have to play from a deficit. And then three six nine hard carried game three with Orn. So I think overall, if you stuck to me through these, <laughs> I actually took like thirty minutes. You have a clear understanding of what my thoughts on the series were. JDG to me was. Uh, a very strong team. I realized I didn't do grades for, for game three right here. I gave uh, the S plus in game three to, to Orn, obviously, 369. So he was the MVP of that game to me. Uh, B plus for Kanavi, A for Yagao, B minus for Hope, and a B for Missing. I actually gave an A plus to uh, Larson in this game for his LeBlanc play. Maybe even should be an S when I'm really thinking about what he almost did to pull them back in the game. Uh, a for Comp and B for Trimby. They did a lot to get early advantages, but then I don't think moved around the map enough when they were strong to really snowball the game. Part of that was because they just couldn't walk up to Orn. Orn was going to kill them both. Um, so yeah, I'd say my, my series MVPs for JDG would, it's like a tie between Kanavi and 369. They, they carried so hard in this. Hope had the one really strong game. I thought Yagao was actually fairly average. That could be because of his COVID, but... Um, JDG should be happy with this one. And I think for Rogue, it's definitely going to be disappointing that their world run ends like this. But what I'm at least like, I think what people should be satisfied with is they 
they did give it their best shot. I think I think their drafts generally did make sense. I don't think they should necessarily be scapegoated for that because they were consistent with the way that they had played. They definitely tried to go for some surprise picks. The Soraka is something that JD wouldn't have experience against. The Maokai is also something they wouldn't have experience against, but they're familiar to Rogue and fit their style. They just didn't work. They just needed the win lanes harder. So um, that's it. That's the last Western team done from Worlds. Uh, I might I might do this for the other series. I, I generally wanted to test this to see if this format works. Uh, I'll definitely be watching it back. I'll be reading the comments to see how people liked it. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time.